The Nature Podcast is supported by Nature Plus, a flexible monthly subscription that grants immediate online access to the science journal Nature and over 50 other journals from the Nature Portfolio. More information at go.nature.com slash plus. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, how to grow toxoplasma without cats. And how the world's largest proteins might turn bacteria into killers. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Nick Patrick Howe. First up on the show this week, reporter Benjamin Thompson hears about a new way to culture a tricky-to-grow parasite in the lab. Toxoplasmosis is a parasitic disease that affects huge numbers of people. Estimates suggest that perhaps 30% of the population across the globe either are or have been infected with Toxoplasma gondii, the single-celled parasite that causes the disease. For many, toxoplasmosis results in mild flu-like symptoms. But for some, like unborn babies or those with compromised immune systems, the results can be serious, even deadly. Like a lot of parasitic organisms, Toxoplasma has a complicated multi-stage life cycle, but broadly it can be split into two parts, the asexual stages and the sexual stages. While researchers know a lot about the former, the latter has proved somewhat tough to learn about, for one reason in particular. In the last 50 years, if you want to study any of the sexual stage, you have to infect cats. You have to look, you know, what's happened in the gut. And in the late 70s, there is this seminal studies where they were able, you know, to examine, you know, the ultrastructures of this stage by infecting cats and killing cats. So for ethical reasons, you can understand. So very few labs, you know, start, you know, working on those stages just because of the fact that they had to use cats as a model organism. This is Ali Hakimi from Inserm in France. He and his colleagues have a paper out in Nature this week laying out a new method to grow part of the parasite's life cycle in the lab without the need for cats. Now, cats are normally central to Toxoplasma's life cycle, which they pick up by eating an infected intermediate host, a mouse, let's say. The parasite evades the mouse's immune system by hiding semi-dormant in cysts. When the cat eats the mouse, these cysts make their way to cells in the gut, where the parasites wake up and divide asexually inside cells in a phase of their life cycle where they're known as merozoites. These merozoites are what later develop into the sexual phase of the life cycle, which reproduce and ultimately come out in cat feces that contaminate water and food, continuing the infection cycle. 
This pre-sexual merozoite stage is normally very difficult to grow in anything but a cat. But Ali and his colleagues wondered if there was another way. We start, you know, thinking of maybe finding a method, you know, to convert or at least, you know, to culture this merozoite in vitro. To do this, the team went back to an earlier stage in the parasite's life cycle, when they're known as tachyzoites. These tachyzoites also divide asexually, but can be easily grown in the lab without the need for cat guts. Ali and the team reasoned that because there are specific genes turned on and off at each stage of the parasite's life cycle, there must be a switch that controls the transition between these two stages. If they could find it, they could artificially get the parasite to develop into merozoites, something that normally only happens inside cells in a cat's intestines. By combing through Toxoplasma gondii's genome, they found two switches that work together, both a type of protein called a transcription factor, snappily titled AP2XII1 and AP2XI2. Those proteins, they are going to bind to DNA and to repress genes. And the genes they are repressing are the genes that are specific to the merozoites. If you release a break, you have the expression of the merozoite program and you are going to make merozoites. So, having found the breaks that stop tachyzoites becoming merozoites, the team went on to cut the break cables using genetic tools like CRISPR-Cas9. We use different methods to lower down the quantity of those factors to create an artificial system where we are pushing forwards by inducing the conversion from tachyzoite to merozoite. Normally, inside cat intestinal cells, a molecular signal would alert the parasite that this is where it needs to be, and this process would occur. But using this new method, the signal from the cat isn't required. This allowed the team to grow merozoites in a type of human cell that's commonly used in lab biology. When the team looked at them, it was hard to tell their parasites apart from merozoites grown in cat cells. So this is a podcast, but I mean, if I had to show you a slide with pictures that were made like 50 years ago, our images, they look pretty the same. And the whole process we describe, all the subcellular content of those merozoites, basically they look the same. So we are quite proud first to reproduce what our peers show in, in infected cats, but 50 years after, you know, they did. And using, of course, again, this small trick instead of using cat to process, you know, this differentiation. Not only could this method help avoid the need for using cats as model organisms, it should also help researchers delve into this part of the life cycle to better understand this complex parasite. But this isn't the end of the story, because after Toxoplasma reaches the merozoite stage, it differentiates into gametes male and female cells, which are the sexual reproduction stage of the parasite's life cycle. And working out how that transition happens is the next part of the puzzle. We are able just to grow the presexual stage, and then they stuck. The idea now for us is to find new breaks, or maybe activators, to go to sex determination, to create male and female gametes. This will be a real, also the next breakthrough, and I hope, you know, next podcast. And I would say we need maybe, you know, a decade <laughs> to get, you know, those gametes. 
Ali says that getting to this stage will have a number of benefits. For example, if researchers want to one day make a vaccine for cats to prevent transmission, they'll need a way to easily culture gametes to understand more about this part of the parasite's life cycle. Questions remain too about exactly how toxoplasma moves from cats to intermediate hosts and how it's able to infect so many different animals like rodents, pigs, birds and of course humans who can pick up the parasite through handling cat feces or eating unwashed vegetables or infected meat. And given that so many people around the world appear to be carrying toxoplasma, developing a more straightforward way to grow gametes in vitro without the need for cats could help explain why some infections are more severe in humans than others. Most of the strain of the parasite right now in Europe and North America are strains that are well adapted to cats that were domesticated but also to rodents that were domesticated. But when you get infected by strains that are coming from likely wild cats and wild rodents. Those strains create several outbreaks in Brazil, French Guiana, Uruguay, and, and so on. So one way of studying those strains is to cross those strains, for example, from wild cat with the one from domestic cat and study you know, their virulence markers. And for that, we need to culture the sexual stage in vitro. Of course, we can make this, you know, by infecting cats. But if you don't want to infect cats, the only way of doing it is to reach this level of having this gamete and the fertilization and so on. That was Ali Hakimi from Insam in France. To read his paper, head over to the show notes for a link. Coming up, the mysterious giant proteins that may or may not actually exist. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights with Dan Fox. Virtual reality might be about to suffer a pest problem as scientists have developed tiny VR goggles for mice. Researchers can use VR systems to study how animal brains react to a simulated setting. But mice don't always fall for VR illusions. Their wide-set eyes reveal the real world in their peripheral vision. Now a team has developed tiny lenses that fit over each of a mouse's eyes – For mice, viewing a virtual maze on a curved screen, the goggles provided depth information and filled the animal's entire field of view with the scene. Mice wearing goggles reacted faster to shapes than those watching on regular screens and also learnt more quickly when they were approaching a reward in the maze, licking their lips in anticipation. Analyzing the animal's brains as they used a treadmill to move through the maze revealed that navigation neurons were activating suggesting the researchers had successfully tricked them. Find your way over to that research in Neuron. A coffee might be just what you need to give your morning a jump start, but an unwanted charge could make your preparation less efficient. During grinding, coffee particles accumulate electric charge. This can make the particles clump together and stick to the grinder, leading to beverage inconsistencies and wasted product. To tackle this, researchers investigated how the charge accumulation is affected by the properties of the coffee beans being ground. They found that less charge built up when they ground beans that had been roasted to a specific degree of darkness, or when using a coarser grinding setting. But the largest decrease in charge came when they added a small amount of water to the beans before grinding them. In the case of espresso, 
This addition also boosted the intensity and reproducibility of the final beverage's flavor. The team say that the findings could have an economic impact on the coffee industry and might have implications for material science, geophysics and engineering, fields in which similar charge accumulation is being actively studied. Get yourself a hot drink and read that research in full. In Matter. Finally, on the show, it's time for the briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of articles that have been highlighted in the Nature Briefing. So, Nick, what have you been reading this week? Well, I've been reading a story in Nature this week about not one of our favourite topics, but maybe one of our very often talked about topics on the Nature (laughs) Podcast, which is sort of publish or perish. And in this particular case, some authors have kind of taken this to an extreme. Extreme publishing. (laughs) Exactly. No, no, no. Genuinely, exactly that. So this is a story about extremely productive authors. And so some of these really, really productive authors are producing, on average, a paper every five days. And that includes weekends, so just almost constant publication of papers. That seems like a lot of work to me. (laughs) It is indeed a lot of work. A lot of work generally goes into making scientific papers, which is why some researchers are a little bit concerned about these authors that are producing a lot of papers as they worry that some sort of duplicitous actions may have gone into getting so many papers so quickly. So this article concerns a preprint that has been analysing these very sort of highly productive authors and they've sort of determined like how many highly productive authors like this there are and where they're from. And so they found in 2016 there were around 387 authors around the world that were publishing like one paper every five days, publishing this really large amount. And then in 2022, they found that there are 1,266 authors publishing one paper every five days. So a real big jump oh. since then. Oh, okay. So was that several several times more just in the last six or seven years? And is that the sort of suspicious thing? Not that anyone could possibly manage to do so much work, but that how has this number sort of gone up so much? Yeah, it's a cause for concern because perhaps there could be some fields or some authors who are able to produce, you know, a lot of papers. And for this analysis, for example, they didn't include physics authors because in physics they are very different sort of ways of authorship and you can be an author on a lot of papers in physics quite easily. But this is yeah, I was outside. Yeah, say it's not... It's not first authors. It's not like me by myself, you know, writing a whole paper every five days. This is sort of including teams and collaborations and things like that. Yeah, exactly. So it could just be that there's been a rise of sort of collaborations and a sort of push towards that. But the fact that these numbers have sort of skyrocketed is Mm. the thing that's raised concerns. And also because a previous analysis showed that the number of these highly productive authors had sort of like stabilized in 2014 so it wasn't going up at that point but then suddenly in the past six seven years it seems to have really gone up and there's some places where it seems to have gone up quite a lot so a lot of this article talks about thailand so thailand in 2016 had one such highly productive author and now there are 19 highly productive authors and thailand was an interesting case because there's a few different things that seem to be going on to actually cause that so in thailand they've tried to focus more on 
interdisciplinary teams. So there's more funding for sort of oh. bigger teams. So that could be a part of it. But there yeah. is also a focus on university rankings there. And these rankings are sort of underpinned by the numbers of publications. And so to try and get oh. these rankings higher, there are actually cash incentives oh. for researchers to publish a lot. So you could earn up to 20 eight thousand us dollars in a year just by publishing and you know maybe because of this there have been like paper mills which we know are these sort of nefarious firms that produce fallacious papers these paper mills have started to propagate in thailand and that sort of thing and there was an investigation that was done on some authors that had these suspiciously high number of published papers and they found that 33 researchers at eight universities had paid for authorship so that was that was a separate investigation that sort of looked into individuals. But yeah. this preprint article that you're talking about, it has just sort of looked at the numbers. And I guess looking at the individual countries then helps you kind of figure out, is this a, a broad thing across science, across a field, or are there sort of particular causes that vary geographically? Yeah, exactly. So in the preprint, they found that pretty much everywhere, the number of these highly productive authors has doubled but in some places such as thailand it's gone up by quite a lot and the highest absolute numbers were in saudi arabia and the article doesn't exactly go into why that might be but because of this sort of general increase in highly productive authors one of the authors of the preprint said that they suspect that questionable research practices and fraud may underlie some of these quite extreme behaviours. And so are these researchers going to sort of dig into this any further? Is there more to sort of figure out about this sort of situation? Yeah, I mean, understanding why it is in some places that this is happening or why this is happening more broadly across the world. Is it things that we talked about that are maybe just the way science is changing? More focus on interdisciplinary mm-hmm. teams, bigger teams, more authors, that sort of thing. Or is it some of this more duplicitous sort of thing like paper mills and paying for authorships and Mm. that sort of thing? I mean, the same author that I quoted from before says that they think that we should focus more on the quality rather than the quantity of publications that scientists do. Mm. Publish or perish is a real phenomenon and researchers are their careers kind of depend on their publication so perhaps moving towards quality would be better although i would caution that with saying that how exactly we determine the quality of a publication Mm -hmm. is also quite a tricky thing so yeah i'm sure we'll be talking about this a lot more though in the future (laughs) no no easy answers to that one i'm going to tell you about my story now which is also not Really a simple answer, but we're going back to some basic science here. And I have been reading about the largest protein in the world. Maybe, possibly, (laughs) could be. So I'll confess, I don't know a great amount about determining the size of proteins. But why is it that you're saying maybe (laughs) in such a way like, surely if it's the biggest protein, it's quite easy to spot? When you put it like that. It sounds like it should be. So let's go back to some fundamentals of biology. Little primer here. Proteins are made of strings of amino acids. Amino acids are encoded for by sequences of DNA or RNA. So what this story is about, so I've been reading about this in Nature, and the reason 
<laughs> so maybe is that they haven't actually spotted a giant protein and gone oh my god <laughs> look there it is it's huge you know looking down the microscope found it what they've been doing is looking through genome sequences right. and finding these big genes which potentially encode for like potentially the longest ever proteins are like the the biggest number of amino acids and we're talking huge here actually so well uh, compared to the previous world record so current world record there's an amino acid protein found in muscles called titan Mm. and that's been for ages the world's biggest protein it's thirty-five thousand amino acids that make up this protein but theoretically the ones they're kind of maybe looking at now 85,000 amino acids, so more than double the length of the previous longest protein. So what might this potentially enormous protein be used for then? Yeah, um, it's a particularly good question when you've sort of started out with like just like a stretch of DNA and a stretch of amino acids, because sort of famously it's it can be quite tricky to work out what the protein at the other end Mm. actually looks like from that so this particular sequence has been found in a phylum of bacteria called omnitrophota they're really small bacteria like really like particularly small cells even for bacteria that are already known for having loads of these giant proteins and there's sort of two ways that the researchers have tried to sort of (laughs) figure out more about what these proteins could be doing one of it is by trying to reconstruct the shape of the final protein from the amino acid sequence, which is particularly hard because it's so big. Mm. So we've chatted about AlphaFold on the podcast before. Mm. So this is what it's for, predicting protein structures from the sequence. This is Google DeepMind's sort of AI system. But it's, it's unsurprisingly not really overly familiar with proteins like that big. <laughs> um, it's, not, it's not really equipped for proteins larger than a couple of thousand amino acids. Um, so apparently if you put in a sequence too long, the author of this preprint where they've talked about this giant protein, and the author says, if you make it too long, AlphaFold will just kind of give up at some point and give you a ball of spaghetti. <laughs> That's so funny. That's exactly what I would do as well. And so the way they got around it was they kind of split it up into overlapping sections and then put each section in and then tried to like see what those sections do, stick them all back together again. And they found sort of functional segments from doing that. So they've got like cell wall binding regions, regions that look like enzymes that attach to and break up sugars and other biomolecules found on cell Mm. walls. So potentially what they're thinking is some sort of predatory (laughs) protein, (laughs) if I can put it that way, (laughs) something to do with these bacteria, yeah, basically predating on and eating other microbes. And there's another strand of evidence that sort of backs up that, which is that these omnitrophota bacteria are actually really hard to grow in the lab. But some Mm. people in Germany last year reported that they'd been sort of slow growing, incubating these omnitrophota in the lab and then analysing it. And they did some electron micrographs, which seemed to show them attacking and devouring other bacteria and archaea. Ah. And this could be what a bunch of their giant proteins that this this phylum has is for. 
So it seems kind of plausible. Another researcher describes these sort of giant proteins as sophisticated weapons wielded by the diminutive microbial hunters in pursuit of bacterial and archaeal prey. (laughs) That is a very cool way to describe (laughs) it. But yeah, I guess, as you say, it's going to be hard to sort of untangle all the bits of this and see how it would eventually form together to be a fully functioning protein. So I guess, what do they need to do next to sort of prove or disprove this hypothesis that it could be a eating device <laughs> yeah well i mean that's not the only thing they need to prove actually is is it's, oh. it's whether that protein that sequence of eighty-five thousand amino acids does in fact make a single protein ah so like they might they've have never a, right, they've, it might have a little bit where it stops or something it might be a few proteins together exactly it could get snipped up after the fact just because the gene is there doesn't mean the protein is all in one go mm. one researcher describes you know many of these giant proteins as just imaginary because um, oh. we you know we can't see them we don't we don't know for sure that it exists it could be yeah you could start with a sort of big protein chain and then chop it into smaller pieces and each sort of section does a different job so that's i guess that's the next step on this and the first author of the paper he is getting his phd soon you know very busy doing lots of things (laughs) but there's a quote here that he wants to see what they actually look like right maybe cryo electron microscopy or something that you can actually map the proteins in cells and he says i just really want to see it and get a ground truth of what it really is it would be such a cool photo i mean that would be a very cool photo and a great way to round off a thesis like oh by the way here's the thing (laughs) and here's a lovely photo so sans photo for now we have got the links to those we'll stick both of those stories in the show notes so you can check them out and also as always you can sign up for the nature briefing we'll have a link to that and get all these kind of cool science stories in your email inbox that's not quite all for this week from the nature podcast stay tuned to your podcast feed as tomorrow there'll be another extra podcast from us about some new research on covid vaccines brilliant well that is it for today's episode however if you want to get in touch with us then you can we are on x at nature podcast or just send us an email we are podcast at nature.com i'm sharmini bundell and i'm nick petra thanks for listening 